Here we are, 2020. This is Anudra Stogi, and I am your host on the Awoken Word podcast. And first of all, I wanted to wish all of you a very happy new year. Happy 2020. I can't believe we're in 2020. When I was a kid thinking about years like this, I thought, you know, flying cars and robots taking care of everything that we had to do, kind of like the Jetsons, but uh, it's not quite there. I mean, I guess I do have a Roomba that scurries around cleaning up stuff after me, but it's more like a dog that doesn't really know what part of the house it should be in. Anyways, that aside, wishing everyone all the best for this year and every year to come. That said, there is no doubt that the first part of 2020 has been a crazy year. There is a lot happening in the world, and there's definitely been days where I feel like hitting Control-Alt-Delete like you do on a PC and restarting because I really don't know what to make of the first few weeks of 2020. But such is the world, and that's a big part of the reason that I started this podcast in the first place. Before we get on to our guest for today, I just wanted to thank everyone once again for all the support and the love throughout 2019 on the podcast. It's been a great journey. I had conversations with all kinds of people in all corners of the world, and it was really satisfying and humbling and energizing for me personally. And if you are loving what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the conversations, if you're taking away something and learning something that you didn't know about before, definitely hit us up on social media, on Instagram, at Awoken Word Podcast, on Twitter, at Awoken Word. We also have a Facebook page. But one of the most important things that you can do is to just tell folks about this show. Spread the word, tell your family, friends, enemies, social media, if you're walking your dog or your pet iguana, if you're at the laundromat folding underwear and you're not even sure it's yours, if you are on the bus and there's a really, really smelly guy next to you and you can't inhale, exhale. And as you exhale, tell the people around you about the Awoken Word podcast because I'm really trying to do my level best in some extremely small, humble way to make the world a little bit better. We really have only two ways to resolve anything in this world when it comes to working with other people. One of those is conflict and violence, and the other is conversation. This show is meant to be the latter of those two. And although on occasion you might hear about a real throwdown or a anchorman-style Mexican rumble, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do here is have important conversations. So hit us up on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and definitely check us out on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review, leave a comment, say something nice, say something mean. Doesn't really matter, just say something. Today I have for you Sammy Chand. Sammy is an incredible man who has done many, many things in his life and continues to push forward. He is a rapper and music producer and record label executive. He has been commissioned by the Obama administration to pull together collaborations and music and albums around causes like anti-human trafficking and anti-bullying. His music was very recently featured on David Letterman's new Netflix show, Our Next Guest Is, and his music was featured in the episode with Shah Rukh Khan, the Bollywood megastar. 
You might know the name because I've given shout-outs several times to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Well, Sammy is actually the founder of Ruckus Avenue Radio, and I had the privilege to actually meet up with him in L.A., and it was quite a day because uh, I got to roll into the old Dash Radio studio with that epic Nipsey Hustle mural up on the front, and getting to know Sammy and meeting him, he's such a gracious gentleman. He's so generous with his time with his energy, with his guidance. He really is a visionary, but he's also extremely generous in the way that he navigates the world. We really hone in on this conversation on a few things. We talk a lot about music, specifically hip-hop. So we talk a lot about hip-hop, its migration across the Atlantic and back over, some of the music and work that he's done over the years with a number of greats. For those of you who don't know, I mean, he's worked with people like Capadonna from Wu-Tang Clan. So this guy's pretty hooked up. We also talk a lot about the journey of an individual finding their identity in today's world. We talk also about what identity means to our children. So Sammy has young children, as do I, and we talk a lot about what this world looks like through their eyes today and perhaps how it might be different in their experience versus the experience that we had growing up. We also talk a lot about politics and what's changed in America or not changed at all, and particularly as we lead into the 2020 elections, there's so much confusion and vitriol in the arena of politics, not just in the U.S., but the world over. It's really important that we tackle these conversations head-on and remember our shared humanity, and, and this is one of those conversations where I really feel like we got to deconstruct some of those things. I really am Grateful, Sammy, to you for making the time and to all the folks over at the Dash studio. Uh, I'll let you know it was a really busy day at Dash that day, so there's a lot of really rowdy conversations playing out in the halls. You're going to hear some of that in the background through this conversation, but it's LA. That's just how things are. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Sammy Chand. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. All right, you good? I'm good. All right. We're here live in L.A., at the Dash Studio. I'm here with Sammy Chan. Sammy, this has been a long time coming. I'm really happy to kind of sit down with you. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to be sitting down with you here, and, and thanks so much for, for making time for this. We're talking about this a little bit earlier. It's been kind of a trip coming down to LA, and I feel like this is only the second time I've been here and actually really felt the city. And then to roll up on the Dash Studio and see the Nipsey mural out on yeah. the front. Like yeah, the whole yeah. thing is just uh, is kind of a cool feeling. This city has got, it's got a vibe about it. It does. There's yeah. something about this place. You can see why the world over, there's something about L.A. Yeah, you know, I, I've, always, I've always liked L.A.'s um, ecosystem in terms of being able to create so much. It's right. got the place for us creatives to come in here and really thrive and be also, also be able to attach some sort of kind of business aspect to it as right. well. Uh, which is why this city does so well for the music and the film industry and everything else. So I, I think there's certainly some truth to it. For it's sure. interesting, too, because it's at the upper echelons of creativity, and it's also grassroots at the yeah. same time, and there yeah. seems to be everything yeah. in between here, too. Yeah, there's a lot to facilitate and grow and incubate. Here, so, so you're not originally from L.A., though? No. Where'd you grow up? What's the story? What brought London. you here? 
East okay. London. I was born at Whitechapel Hospital in 1975, and you know, with my parents, I moved here when I was 12 years old in '87, and I've been here since in LA, and and you know, of course, made LA my home, and have grown to you know love and expand myself here. But it is, um, you know, ended up becoming the perfect backdrop for what my career ended up becoming, and as I grew into what LA had to offer, I think that there was probably some mutuality between picking this as a way of life and, and also you know being here. And, and right. it was one of the things that I think uh, really drove me into the entertainment industry overall. So. And have you moved around the city a lot too? or uh, You know, not so much. I've been pretty much in the San Fernando Valley area the whole time really, you know, but I've really used LA uh, as much as I've needed it. You know, it's like right. about 30 minutes away. Okay. And I can dip in and dip out whenever I've needed to. And I've stayed here for, you know, like chunks of time, like a few months or whatever it might be, whether I was working on a project or I really wanted to kind of hone in on something specifically. Um, so I've used it when I've needed to, but it's convenient enough to kind of step away and go live the, the suburban life as well. What caught me by surprise, <laughs> the last time I was here back in May, I think it was when we met, I rented a Jeep and then drove up through Malibu and a little bit further up, and then I cut through, I don't even know where, I was just wherever, uh, wherever chance took me, I just kind of drove through, and I didn't realize this is a massive city on the edge of endless nature. I didn't realize the mountains, the forests, everything. Like, you could be on the other side of a hill and not know that there was any civilization yeah. there. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's beautiful in that capacity. I think California overall is very kind of... Uh, of course, you know, mindful of its environment and its natural kind of habitat, and it's been doing a great job over the last number of years of preserving that. So right. uh, it's good to see, you know, folks from outside coming in and seeing LA is doing a good job of preserving that. I think it's important of what California, especially LA, has to offer because you always hear the whole, "Hey, you can go from the beach to the slopes in two hours," and that's right. it's actually true. You can, you know, and right, right. So. I didn't have enough space to figure out what I actually describe you as between music composer and record executive and you know now starting off Ruckus Avenue Radio, all these different things that you do. Like, if you need to tell somebody who you are, where do you, where do you even begin? <laughs> I, I, it's really funny. It depends on who's asking me and in what capacity and, and in what space they're asking me. I think, I think one of the things has always been that for me, what depending on what cap I'm wearing and what capacity and... and and, and what I'm doing in a specific moment, I'm that person. It, but it's true, I'm, I'm, I do a lot of different things and I've had a lot of different things that I've accomplished in the past. But uh, to me, I've always put it down very easily. I, in simple ways, or at least try to make it as simplistic as possible, and that is, I happen to sit on the confluence of two of the most interesting entertainment industries in the world right now. And for me to have this very unique vantage point I've, I've really spent a lot of my time over the last number of years, you know, creating things in this space. And so if there's one thing I can kind of capsule it all is that I sit in this interesting place where these two kind of streams meet. And, and, and sorry, and the two industries are? The Indian industry and the Western industry. So why, why do you think that or those... Or specifically the American industry. Why do you think that those two are interesting? What puts them in that box for you? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with personally, right? Who who I am, where I came from, the culture and and and, and the community has been very important to me. I've stayed in touch with it. I've been engaged in it and all the businesses that are there and stuff. But I also actually feel that the two spaces are two of the most exciting places from a business perspective too. My mentor, Seymour Stein, one of my mentors, his name is Seymour Stein. 
and he's been a prominent figure in the American music industry and, and you know, founded the punk music kind of term and went on and, you know, signed people like Ice-T, Madonna and all these great people. He said, Sammy, what has been America over the last 50 years in the, and, and the UK for the music industry is now going to be India for the next 50 years. And it's a really interesting thing that he says to me there because he, he's pretty much given this last 100 years of the music industry or the, a span of 100 years where 50 years in the past and now 50 years in the future. For us to have this really unique vantage point of being involved in both of these spaces. So what, is, what is made him say that? Like has he spent time in India? Yes. Has he oh, just absolutely. been observing it? Like, oh what? no, both. All those things, right? All of the above. He, Seymour's been a very prominent figure in India. Uh, just you know, from representing the music industry from here, you know, when his time was at Warner, now he's he's left Warner, but he he was always a big proponent of India and, and kind of got Warner to think a lot about India as kind of hey, you know, we should look at this kind of frontier, and even though it is a little bit of a wild wild west out there, we can kind of make some sense out of it. And of course, the numbers are undeniable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The people here in the music business or in the entertainment business or any business look at India with like rose colored glasses on, and so I think that there's a, a combination of these things and. So what do you think makes India interesting in this context? What does India have on its side that makes it interesting for media, for film, music? Well, you can start with English, right? Sure. I think that's the first thing I always look at, is, is the language is, is there. Mm -hmm. uh, especially coming from America like us, right? right? Uh, or North America like us. And I think that um, that's, that's one. I think the two, as much as this, you know... Is, is important, I think, in multiple levels. In entertainment, it also plays a part, and that is the socioeconomic, political climate is much more conducive to a culture like ours to go in there and be able to connect some dots and, and, and talk about things and, and not face kind of censorship or other things like that, right? So being from America, whether it's in the capacity of radio, right. broadcasting from here and having 95 shows where we've got things like, you know, topics like the LGBT and Q community, the business community, the spiritual community, all sure, these different yeah, things yeah. that are there that for a number of reasons can be, you know, censored by different countries. I mean, India is far more kind of democratic in that perspective and far more open-minded and kind of embracing Western culture. Right. And so I think for all those kind of various kind of virtues, I think we, we, we have a good shot of, of expanding there. I've actually found India and between friends and family and all the time that I've spent there is so much more eclectic than I would have anticipated. Yeah. Because there was over 20 years from being a kid till just after I got married where I hadn't been. And then when I went, I was pleasantly surprised on many fronts because people's musical tastes, first of all, like the same person in a 15-minute span might be listening to punk rock and then death metal and then hip-hop and then, you know, some pop track or whatever. And I find here, and this is a generalization, but people yeah. tend to be a, little, a lot more ghettoized in the genres that they listen to and then the genre becomes an expression of who they are too right like if you listen to punk you hang around with certain people and you only do certain things in certain areas and you dress a certain way you listen to hip-hop it'd be the same thing whereas i found there musical tastes and their consumption of art was sort of separate from who they were but it was all mixed together if it was something they liked they liked it yeah it's interesting, right? Because we, we have, a, have this preconceived notion that everybody in India is dancing to Bollywood and they only see those kind of images on television and, and mm -hmm. culturally and so on and so forth. But 
I have been just amazed at just how culturally open India is as well. People don't give it enough credit from that perspective. That music from the West does so well there, right?、Mm-hmm. Culturally, it is as open as about as any culture as you can find in the world. And I think that that's an opportunity. Yeah, you, you can find places and people to talk to there, even for a radio station like our own. And、uh, you know, it, it, even though it comes from a An American, North American, Western perspective, and of course we're trying to shorten that you know distance between us and being an Indian label as well、sure. in terms of content coming from there. But as we kind of move our way east in terms of bringing hosts on and different people from India onto our station, we have felt that we have found rather that they are so open to what the dialogue is even here in our community, even、mm. though they're a little bit removed from it geographically and culturally, maybe even that they're still embracing that dialogue, and, and I think that. India is a place where it can easily kind of embrace and even, you know, activate some of that discussion, right, right. And, and actually be in a place to act on things to where things in social and society can actually change. And so, hey, let's see what happens there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I think open a, to it. a big part of that is the diaspora, right? The fact that there's so many people from India that happen to are living outside it, fifteen, twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred years, still feel some sense of connection. Have seen so much change happening in that country, and because of the conduit, whether it's back in the days, whether you're bringing like cassette tapes or CDs back and forth just to introduce new music to now, where it's democratizing available on the internet. But there's a constant exchange, right? So we kind of feed off each other. You know, from from my own perspective, like in the music that I've been very deeply involved in, in the you know what was previously understood as the Asian underground scene、right. in Asian electronica. In many ways, if you take a lot of the Electronic breakbeats and、uh, drum and bass and even dubstep—that's almost reinvigorated some people's interest in Indian classical music, which has got thousands of years of yeah. history. Yeah, because the two really played well with each other. But then that almost introduced both electronic music and Indian classical to a lot of people that may not have been exposed to it even in India. And then they take it and then they do something of their own with it. So it's like. We're all kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, right?、Yeah. We're passing these ideas、totally. back and forth, and then taking them in totally new directions. I mean, some of my first、um, uh, access to Indian classical was in the form of people like Talvin Singh、mm-hmm. and some of these great musicians from the UK that were taking this stuff and, and kind of modernizing it through drum and bass or whatever else it might be. And 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 even though it was coming to us through that, we were exposed, as you said, to Indian classical, to this rich kind of history that we had and. And definitely expose me to different people in、right. that genre, you know,、right. that I may not have been exposed to before. And you know, there were melodies and and things that I heard in some of the records that were coming out of of that genre, specific. And as we talk about Asian underground,、um, that had me go back and explore my roots a little、mm-hmm. bit more further. Right, and be like, wow, where did that come from? And this this can't be, you know, this sounds so rich and old. It, it, there's got to be a rock or something that it's 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 evolved from or something. And you found that. It was、right. there. It was there for you to go discover if you wanted to. Right, right. And so I, I give a lot of credit to those guys because, I, to a certain degree, it's missing right now. There's no kind of, you know, modern like kind of representation of like this deep history or deep culture musically for us. It's being redone into hip hop and other things like that. Sure, but、uh, you know, we're we're missing something right now in that.、Aspect. Yeah, I think it says something about the time that we're in too. It's funny because in 2010. I opened with my band for Thalvin, right? And I think that was the second time I met him. And he's a really great guy.、Yeah. He's very down to earth and very humble. He seems to be a man of few words, at least from my experience、yeah. with him. 
But what was interesting is meeting him and kind of seeing him in his element doing his thing and then also thinking about how influential his music had been on some formative years for me creatively. Uh, it was the same thing when I first met Nathan Sani. Right. Uh, also did like an opening DJ set when he was in Toronto playing one year and then I've gone on to meet Ashwin Srinivas and, and some of the other people he's collaborating with. And so seeing the people that these artists have worked with in the music that they're creating, the influence that they've had, and now seeing them continuing to create, but the time that they're operating in has changed so much. I, I think as a, in terms of the identity that we used to find with that music, I don't know that we really find that connection anymore. I think we, perhaps even as a diaspora, have moved on in some regards. A lot of diaspora have done big things, you know, everyone from Jay Sean to, you know, to MIA. There's more and more brown faces, if you right. will, you know, in the media and whatnot. And so I think a lot of people have started to find our place in this bigger mainstream mosaic. But I feel like we've lost something along the way. And maybe it's just part of the evolution of the culture. It might just be. might be the evolution of the culture. I think, we've, I think we'll come back to it for sure. Okay, so one of my favorite, and, and you, you bring up Nithisani, and we're talking about Asian Underground. Mm-hmm. So my favorite Asian Underground song ever is Nadia. Oh, my God, okay? yeah. yeah. To me, if there's like one song that, you know, capsules the Asian Underground movement to me, it's that song, mm-hmm. that specific piece which is drenched in the two elements that you talk about. Right. Indian classical and this modern kind of... Is there a space for it there? Is, it, is there room for it and a space for it there? Yes, there is, but I feel like we're two degrees away from there right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's something that has to happen from a musical perspective, even in its modern capacity where we are right now, to take a step towards creating this, even from an auditory perspective, the space for classical music to exist right. and thrive in right now. There's, there's, there's an element of sound that we haven't created right now where that marriage can kind of come back to life again right now. Right. We've taken a step away from drum and bass in one way, shape, or form. Sure. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that means, but that, to me that kind of is w- what it is. And it's like I think something will come along in the very near future with someone that will create something from an auditory perspective to where there is this room for this kind of you know, classical kind of you right know, space to exist and so I think there's a there's a bigger thing that is beyond just the diaspora it's beyond like that I feel like a lot of what's in mainstream music today is cherry picking good things there's a lot of great artists in the quote unquote mainstream and I think there's probably more great music being made today because there's more music being made full right. stop like right. than at any period in history but I don't know that people's sensibilities to what makes music good or rich or sophisticated is quite there. And I think maybe that's a, a partly families not having the means to introduce music or instruments and whatnot early in kids' life or defunding of music programs or just the bombardment of, of the mainstream. But I feel like there's something that we've lost in terms of being in touch with, whether it's Indian classical or Western classical or jazz. And I think those elements get sampled. They get pulled into hip-hop. And some sometimes it's done very, very well. What I, I thought about the Asian underground scene was it was a gateway drug to getting into the pure forms right. of the music that it was drawing on. Right. And not that there was anything wrong with the fusion, um, but it, it sort of sparked a curiosity to explore these things. So I, I think in some ways I'm almost, I'm, I'm looking forward to new artists and venues where people come out and say, I'm bringing these two things together, but you should actually go and check this stuff out. You should check out the greats. You should listen to the people who actually came up with all of this stuff. And I think that there's just so much richness there that is missing because 
we're packing everything into three minutes. Sure. Uh, you know, in a rush. So, uh, but maybe I'm just an old are you, guy. Are you pointing out our collective ADD? Uh, and I think that that's part of it as well. I mean, we're, we're just, we're consuming things differently. We're, 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 you know, even from, as you reference and, and touch on some of the topics as to like education and some of these things that have been defunded through the years, that we're just not, you know, our mind hasn't been expanded and stretched into these places for us to absorb some of the commercial aspects of classical music now. It's like right. we're just not stretched out in our minds in that way anymore, and especially right. this younger generation now, as we see it, right? It's, it's so based on immediate gratification in, in, in a number of ways, whether it's finding material mm -hmm. or discovering things or even listening for the, the song to develop and the melody to develop. So my favorite artist of all time is Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, mm -hmm. okay, who, uh, as you know, also I, I have like an hour here on our station with it. Right. I, I, I put a little playlist together and it's completely fashion I mean completely passion driven right mm -hmm. for my love with it but the reason why I bring him up right now is because his songs go from like 10 to 20 minutes sure, long yeah, yeah. And, and you gotta sit through some of it right yeah. if, you're, if you're not familiar with his music and, and I think that that type of arch that you get and that arc that you create in, in, in a song and given a musician's kind of space in the real estate to develop that story and to develop that arc and you know develop that kind of climax in the music yeah. uh, that space for that artist to do so it just isn't there anymore. We just don't allow them that space to do so. Yeah. Give us a 15 or 20 minute song and, you know, without turning it off after two and a half minutes and say, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, song. yeah, Give me exactly. Some I mean, yeah. You, you can't squish everything into three minutes. It just, it doesn't always work. Right. The appreciation for creating something. I find this, you know, now with a four and eight year old and my daughter is just, you know, she's just figured out YouTube. You know, she can, if she wants to listen to a song, she'll go and search for it and find it. And first of all, when a song's in her head, to just find it and have it play right away. That's something that's still novel <laughs> to me, but like for her, it's just how it is. That's yeah. what she's seen. Yeah. So often with anything digital in particular, we just expect it to be free. Right. But if you expect a song to be free, you're actually kind of missing the point that it may have taken that artist 10, 15, 20 years to hone their craft, whether right. it's their voice or their instrument. Then they may have spent hours, weeks, months sitting down to record that today, whether it's in a bedroom studio or in a big studio or whatnot, and then mix it, and then all of the other things that had to go into it. So the effort that it took to actually create that three minutes that you're enjoying right now, I understand why people don't get it if they're not exposed to, but that's one thing I'm trying to expose my kids to is, here's how things get made. Right. Whether it's like a table that you buy or whether it's a song. I mean, I'm fortunate I have, a, you know, I have my studio at home um, so the kids are kind of exposed to, here's how you record a song, here's how you mix a song, here's how much time it takes, here's how many different kick drums or snares you have to go through to even be able to get that one right, right. sound. So I think they're getting a little bit of that appreciation because I'm fortunate enough to be able to expose them to it. But I, I think that that's something perhaps in as society as a whole within our schools, we should be exposing our kids to how stuff is made yeah. <laughs> so that you can appreciate it and so that even if you download it for free, at least you know that it didn't just kind of, it wasn't a snap of a finger and it didn't just manifest. You know, it's interesting you bring this up. I think nothing tells our story more so than food, right? How communities come together, cultures mm. come together. I think second is music, you know? And, and, and I think that there's so much ethnomusicology and, mm -hmm. and there's so much history and how a flamenco guitar has become what it has become. Right. There is so much in how uh, a tabla is what it is and how maybe bongos are what they are, right? And there are, there are so many kind of stories there that could be drawn back to some moment in history or some, 
you know, migration of some sort or something happened there that kind of tells the story. And I think that's the beautiful thing about music and specifically this kind of story that we have to kind of tell right. through food or whatever. And, and I think any opportunity that we get to stop and look at these things is interesting. Here's a little funny story. We were in Mexico the last couple of weeks. And my son looks at me and says, Daddy, you know, I haven't had a burrito in a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I want a burrito. And I looked to my, my son and I said, son, this is Mexico. They don't have burritos, right? Because burritos are an American thing. Mm -hmm. You don't find them in Mexico. If they are, they're in an American place. And right, gonna, yeah. You know. And so tacos is what we have over here. But it's interesting how that came about. I, we, we can kind of relay this back to music in the very sure. similar yeah, yeah. sense, right? And how these things are done or how a table is what it is and how it's etched with the design work it's etched with in the sides or whatever. That, there's a story to be told. That's the magic of all this, Anuch. I think that there's a story to be told, whether it is you're telling mm -hmm. your son or your daughter as to how things were made or what they are. But that's, that's what these things are doing. They're telling stories. Yeah, and, and we, we've, society is what it is because of stories. Yeah. Like we tell each other stories and we get each other to fight wars or form alliances <laughs> or fall in love. Yeah. That is the one thing that makes us, I think more than anything, it's the one thing that makes us human as a collective, right? If there's no story, then you don't really have something to stick onto. Like two people that have met for the first time, the story can connect them more than, you know, individual, whether it's language or food or ethnicity and whatnot. But yeah, I'm, I'm big on story. I'm a sucker for, <laughs> for all of that. So um, I'm curious, as a producer of music, as a composer of music, as a executive managing other artists, so music is obviously a big part of your life. Right. What the hell does music actually mean to the world? Why should we even care? Why should anyone care about music? What's, what's the value of it for you? Oh my goodness. Um, there is, it's interesting. Uh, I'm gonna go back to Seymour Stein again. And in his words, um, you know, can people live without music? And he says, no, uh, right before maybe even food, at the end of it all, there'll probably be somebody banging on a table or something saying, hey, we're about to run out of food here. There's right. some music and, and this is what this is. So from our perspective, I think that as we tell our stories, I know that from an individual perspective of my own even, if there's anything I can tell you that it means to me, it's been that I have used it my entire life to explain myself. And it's, it's been the, the best way for me to go about explaining myself. So when you ask me what has it meant to me, it's been that. It's been my identity. It's been a story of many cultures coming together and me having to explain how Indian hip-hop came about or mm -hmm. me having to explain where that happened and how that happened, right? And what, that, what, what brought that moment together or whatever. When you say be. explain, explain to who? To others or to yourself? Well, I, I think to... to, to Everyone, I think not only to myself, because I think, sure, I, I, I experienced it and I understand it, but in terms of how it came about, but there might be a kid in Mumbai who's sitting there saying, yo, man, how come hip-hop is so big right now in India? How, how did this happen, right? And they may not necessarily know how that came about because mm -hmm. it had to have some American kind of root sure. there yeah, yeah. because of what hip-hop is, and there had to be somebody that was able to connect those two dots together in a place where that could be incubated and kind of grown and, and then transported over in some sort of vessel or some sort of way and, mm -hmm. and then for it to kind of catch and touch down over there, which is kind of what it all happened, right? Right. But that story to me um, says a lot about a lot of things. Our immigration story, our, 
how we're culturally communicating this culture going out. What is it that we're adopting here? All these different things right. are being negotiated at every studio session or at every concept, con conceptual conversation that comes along. So to me, I, I think if there's, if there's one way of putting it, I think music has been telling our story this whole time for us. And I think that's been a big mm. thing for me. Um, and that's probably how I connect to it so much is that it's, it's a language for us. It's how we've been talking about our community. It's how we connect to America. It's how we connect to everyone else around the world is we play them Indian hip hop or whatever it might be. I'm just saying, even as a composer, whatever I've made or composed at that moment, sure. this story is an explanation to how that influenced me, you know? And, and I, I think that's the... It's, it, it's funny that, like, even just saying it that way, the moment you put together the words Indian and hip-hop, there's a story right there. Yeah. There's a story that you can infer. Right. There's a, this, this idea, music that emerges in a time of, you know, state defunding of music programs, you know, federally and in New York State, and then people having nothing but turntables and a voice to, to turn to to tell their story, and that becoming a voice for black America at that time, and then that becoming something mainstream and now finding roots in another country. Like, right. there's all of that implied there. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it tells the story of human history, because I actually hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it just, I mean, food is always the most apparent thing, I think, that people see and think of, and they're like, you know, how do we come up with a burrito to kind of go back mm -hmm. to the example? But yeah, it's interesting how that happens. And I think um, musically, there's a lot of explanation there that to be had as to how things are developed in certain places. Like, how, why is it that we didn't embrace rock music as much as we did do hip hop? Uh, was it accessibility in India? Was it hard to put a band together? Or, or now you have to find five people with musician with, with an instrument yeah. and and space and all these other things that come about. Whereas hip hop was some cat by himself on a cell phone sitting mm -hmm. in his room somewhere and doesn't need anything more than that and, and you're, a hip, you're a rapper and I think accessibility and so many other things that came to be a part of that but you know, those things can only be told by knowing exactly where it's going. And, right, and I mean like rock is still huge in India and rock was probably the dominant western form for a long time but I think so many people just don't have access to either the instruments or to the musical training right. and whatnot. Or if you were even in a musical family, I could imagine in a lot of cases in India, that was the music that would have been looked down upon by you know, a family that's either coming from a classical pedigree sure, or devotional sure. or whatnot. The thing about hip hop that's interesting is that you don't need to be a musician per se, you just need to have a story, whatever, yeah. whatever that whatever story is. is. Right. And if you can figure out how to tell that story, that's basically it. You don't actually need a beat. You don't need a DJ. You don't actually need anything else. It is just modern prose. It's modern poetry. I grew up in Western Canada. Hip hop was a, I think by the time I was in junior high is probably when it entered my lexicon. I think, you know, with, with Public Enemy and Run DMC right. and whatnot. And at the time that I was in, it, growing up in Edmonton, there was this point where for a few years there was this surge in racism and I, I don't know exactly what drove it but there was a lot of racial tension within junior highs and high schools and for a good while there was a bunch of for the most part young immigrant kids that were just getting bullied by jocks all over the city and a whole series of events played out in this ragtag group of mostly brown guys or Indian guys started and it became Brown Nation and then it right. turned into a lot of fighting that right. happened in the city for a while. But in the context of growing up at that point in time, not being white and trying to figure out identity, there was something about 
hip-hop, the voice of hip-hop, the fact that you've got a black voice that is oppressed and trying to be heard. There was something about that identity, I think, that for a lot of us just resonated for whatever reason. And so hip-hop started to become a bigger force. So I've grown up on hip-hop ever since I was, you know, 13, 14. And then in around 06 or 07, I'd seen, you know, bits and pieces of Indian hip-hop, but I'd always dismissed it because it was just corny. Like, it was right. like, I, I see what you're trying to do, but you just don't get it. Or it was like a fun song about some sort of kind of novelty thing. Like sure. Patel rap and things like that that we had encountered in our time before that, right? Where yeah, people had yeah. Done these kind of offbeat kind of funny things where they're making fun of things or whatever. Right, right. right. Yeah. So then, I mean, this is even, I think YouTube emerges around 06. So this might have been right around that time, maybe a little bit later. I come across Blood Brothers and the Carmacy track in five languages. Horizons. And I saw that, Horizons. And I, I remember sitting back in my chair going, holy shit, I did not think that this would work. First of all, I didn't even conceive of it. I sure. didn't conceive of anybody doing it. But then when I saw it and I heard it, I'm like, wait a second, this works. This has all of the ingredients of hip hop. It's authentic. But it's, it's familiar and yet so unfamiliar. So I, I heard that, I, like I loved it. I remember, I remember showing my, my wife you know, a few years later when I met her, I'm like, you gotta check this out. Like, mm. I don't know who these guys are, but right. this is pretty epic. And then nothing for years. And then I think out of the UK and to some limited extent out of the US, you start to see some uh, uh, South Asian rappers kind of emerge. Right. And then in 2015, I was in India, and I just ended up connecting with this one guy that I'd seen on a BBC documentary from the Slum Gods, uh, one of India's first hip-hop crews. Long story short, I end up at like 2 in the morning on the fringes of Mumbai in the middle of a music video shoot and met 40 guys from five (laughs) different crews. And I shot something that ended up on Hip Hop India. It was like a cipher between all these crews. And I'd never seen guys rapping in Hindi, Punjabi, Marathi, Telugu. I felt like I was in SoCal. Like, yeah. Like a, one guy looks like Snoop, another guy looks like Dre. This was hip hop, I can imagine, in California in the 90s, but this was 2015 in, in India. India. And I remember talking to some of these guys. I met Shantanu that night. I've since had on a Woken Word. And then I hadn't actually connected all these dots, and I'm like, holy shit, Sammy. <laughs> this all starts back to that moment when I first came across. Blood Brothers and Horizons, and I saw you guys doing your thing in there, and it took you know eleven or twelve years before that seed kind of planted, found a solid enough rooting that guys there internalized what you were doing, internalized hip hop, managed to spend enough time with it to give it their own voice and not try and mimic something but right. just be authentic, right. and just the story of that, the back and forth across the Atlantic and back basically. As soon as I kind of connected all those dots, it just blew my mind. Interesting. That's really interesting. And, I, and, and here I am with you. Well, that's, it's a small world. It's funny how life works, but I, I, I'll tell you this, though. I think we were, we were really the first crew to come about and put hip-hop in a way where it could go live in this space forever. Where I think, whereas before, as we were kind of referring to earlier, it was kind of hokey or it was novelty-based or it was like a you know, uh, a moment uh, in, in something to kind of show like this urban kind of feel mm-hmm. of something, but there was never really any clear 
story being told and what we traditionally recognize as hip hop right. in, in its Western format, where there is, you know, you're being judged on the lyrics and you're being judged on the actual execution, and there's like this art form to it that is, you know, up, up, up to date, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's contemporary in its form. Uh, I think we were the first ones to really do that. I think we gave it a direction. We were like, okay, this is our kind of take on this, but this is how America would do Indian rap if there was such a thing. And I felt right. like that's what Karmacy was in its time. Mm -hmm. and, and if there's anything that has resonated since then is that maybe there is a part of that blueprint that kind of stuck, that kind of through its own evolution, whether it's time or how music or even some of these economic things that we've talked about have made influence in this, they all kind of need to kind of incubate into this one direction. And to a certain degree, I think how we had it is really, I think, what's become the winning formula going forward. Yeah, I would, I would, I would redact the maybe from your statement because if you were to map the genome of hip hop in India today, I think absolutely, like Karmacy and what you guys did there is a part of that. Like it's, sure. it's, it's the roots because hip hop is, it's interesting because it came from a very specific moment in time right. in America you know, specifically in the early days from Brooklyn, New York, but it's also built on an entire, at least four or 500 years of history from African rhythm cycles and scat and jazz and blues and whatnot. So it's got its own evolutionary arc. And then it moves across, you know, the US and then you've got West Coast rap and then you have pockets popping up in Atlanta and all over the country and whatnot that have their own flavor. But everywhere that it traveled, people found a way to make it their own. Right. And it wasn't until people found a way to make it their own, I think, in India, where, where it actually felt like, okay, yes, this is undeniably hip-hop, but it's also undeniably you. It couldn't be from anywhere else. I think that's when it really found well, its, its footing. I, I think because we were using it to explain ourselves here, to this audience here, right? right? That whether it is uh, people like myself and yourself that have grown up in this community listening to Public Enemy and everything else, mm -hmm. and now to see like four Indian guys up on stage rapping, there was a point of reference where there was a standard there for you to hold four Indian kids rapping on stage to. You had heard what American hip hop had sounded like and what it's supposed to sound like, and there was a, an expectation as to like what you wanted a song to be or whatever right. it might be. And I think that with this, was really formed more so from the Western community, right? Mm -hmm. and we, for whatever it is, we had borrowed those formulas and kind of put together. And there had been things like Latin stuff and French stuff and all these other things happening in, in somewhat of a parallel form as well. And so there was a lot of reference and things for us to kind of build our kind of model around. But uh, we were telling our story to American people first. And mm -hmm. I think that that standard is what drove that. And, and, it, and, and I, I'm not sure if it would have been different if we had kind of wrote this for an Indian audience because maybe we would have simplified it. Maybe we would, we would have been a little bit more hokey or maybe we would have been a little bit more kind of novelty oriented about it. But for us, that wasn't the case. It was right. more so, hey man, we might be rapping after, you know, like a Tribe Called Quest in a show. What we, you know, we, we got to do certain things about, you know, how we present ourselves and stuff right. as well. It, it was the moment. It was the late 90s in L.A. and California, and it was into the early 2000s in L.A. and California, and the community then was so much more different, and, and, and you know, there's so many different things that were going on in hip-hop right. as well. So. so along the way, you have been both deeply immersed in and on the periphery of a lot of really interesting things. I mean, like, I only just found out that you did that track with Capadonna <laughs> from Wu-Tang maybe a few months ago. 
And I was like, what? <laughs> like, nice. like you're everywhere. Um, you know, the, the, the work that you've been doing on human trafficking and raising awareness around that, like you do a lot of different things. What, what inspires you? Like what keeps you going every day? Huh. I mean, we can, we can go back to the obvious answer of you have kids, you want to make this world better. You want to leave a, a mark there that's positive in some sort of direction. I think that's the obvious thing for me at least. But when you peel past some of that, you'll find that these have been opportunities that have come our way because we happened to be in the right place at the right time or we were standing in this very unique vantage point of, like I said to you before, this confluence of these two mm -hmm. kind of spaces, right? And our knowledge and understanding of how to navigate through some of those. So a lot of people did turn to us and they said, hey, Sammy, uh, and for example, the White House's case, when we worked with President Obama on the anti-bullying album, they reached out to us because we had an audience that we knew how to get to, and we knew how to speak that language. We, need to, we knew the musicians and the artists in the, in the community to put a collective voice together, where maybe mm -hmm. it may have been a little bit difficult for someone else to do so who isn't in the, in the, in the community. Or, and so things like that that happened to come our way that we were like, oh my God, what an honor it would be to work with President Obama. And then, mm -hmm. of course, when we worked with the UN and some of these things that were kind of unintended consequences of what we were doing just on a day-to-day -day level of just, you know, trying to make the world a better place. I know that sounds hokey, but it's the truth. We were working on the film Sold, on, which is an, a human trafficking film. It mm -hmm. really kind of shines a light on the story there as to how things typically play out. And, and for us, being involved in that is how we got involved in, in what was going on with the UN's fight because, again, we were doing something in a small community, and so somebody wanted to use that kind of way of us communicating to our audience through music and say, hey, can you do this on a right. grander level and tell this story to people where they can understand it? And so, uh, you know, a lot of that happened to be because we were there. But for us, it's always been that we've kept ourselves in a certain space of being very positive and making sure that we do work on things that make a difference. And if you stay in that kind of lane, people know what to expect from you, and they mm -hmm. know how, how you can per perhaps help them and, and some of their things. And we've always purposely aligned ourselves with causes that, that right. try to make a difference because it's always more than just being about money or it's more than right. just be about, you know, whatever. When you say make a difference or make the world a better place, what does that mean to you? Oh, man, I, I think there are so many different places we can begin, right, in terms of where, where that can be. But I think that from our capacity of music, uh, we don't get asked to do much sometimes other than bring awareness or bring highlight or different things like that. So whenever you can put together... For the UN, we put together 55 of some of the most prominent musicians, artists, but also political figures and activists and people like that. Um, we provided a platform or at least a space for all of us to get together and kind of shout from the mountaintop about the cause of human trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. People like A.R. Rahman, Jimmy Carter, uh, Sonu Nigam, Hall of Notes. <laughs> I mean, like, all the list goes on and down and down and like right. garbage to... You know, so many different people, like boys to men to, I mean, the more and more I think about it, the names are just eye-popping. And it's because everyone felt like there was a need for them to get involved in this cause. And we were a very convenient space for them to come and, and be a part of something. And like I said, shout from the mountaintop in a collective form and try to bring some awareness to it. So because of that, you know, some of the things we've done in the past have changed laws around the world. In some countries, you can't travel in and out the same way you were able to before some of the music that we put out there, you right. know, because it was able to nudge some sort of legislation to change or whatever it might be, whether it was in the film Sold or in this UN album. Those type of changes to me are really what excite me because you're like, man, 
I'm just a record producer here in LA trying to put some things together, but if laws are changing in Nepal as to how people are you know, allowed to leave and enter the country, well, fuck, that's a good thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I'll take that opportunity and that, that, that ability to make a change in, the, in whatever position I was given at that moment. So it's, it's a transactional thing. I always want to make something positive happen after, out of each of these things that come our way, but I think it's, you, you just got to stay in that positive side of things and you know, right. you'll have more chances to do things. When you listen to when you listen to music today, you just crank the radio, any mainstream radio station. What do you think about the music that's out there? Like, is it is it cynical? Is it positive? Does it say something about this point in time that we're in right now? Uh, I think so. There's a lot of that. I, I I've got to see music again through the eyes of my kids. All right, my 13 year old daughter looks at my playlist when I have it going on in my car, and she'll look at me and say, "Daddy, this is whack." You need to turn this off. <laughs> and it's like uh, whoever, Chance the Rapper or, you know, YBN Corday. I mean, these are some of the people that are putting out hit albums right now in the moment, as of now. Right. But it's the breed of hip hop that they're putting out. This younger generation is like, uh, this is boring. You know, where's the whatever? And, and, and from that perspective, I think that's always been the case. I think there's always people telling you to get off their, their lawn and yeah, yeah, telling yeah. you that, you know, that things were better when they were better and, 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 and it is what it is. But so for that, I, I always kind of hush myself and say, well, maybe I'm getting old and this is why I'm developing these type of feelings. But I also think that our perspective of seeing how the business is from the inside and how things are being mm. kind of marketed to and how things are being manipulated to be kind of, you know, in a point of transaction. You know a little too much now. I know a yeah. little too much. Yeah. And so I know what's being, you know, what's happening. And, and, and so because of that, I, I think in some ways it is sad, you know, and, and things like, you know, we don't have great classical music in our contemporary stuff going on. I don't know, stuff like that. Sure, yeah, or even, <coughs> ignore Excuse classical, me. even just like mainstream pop music. I've asked a lot of the artists that I've, I've met with and had on the podcast this question around, is there a responsibility that musicians or artists or creatives have that's unique from everyone else to say something, if they have any platform or no platform at all? Um, and the, the answers kind of vary from, from person to person, but at the end of the day, music is a powerful force right. and it can be deliberately or inadvertently used in many different ways. Today it's used to either propagate a certain message about a certain group of people or it's used to sell you some, some shit, something you might need, something you might not need, whatever it is, but it is a commodity and I think that people have realized the power of this commodity and you know, in and of itself I don't know if there's anything wrong with that but it is still a force, right? And right. so we, we, if we're deliberate on how we use it, I think that's actually a really important thing for us to consider, especially like, you know, I have young kids now too and they're listening to things like, my kids are absolutely apeshit crazy about Old Town Road. Right. Like, they are constantly singing it. They love that song. I, I went into their school. Every other group <laughs> of kids is yeah, singing yeah, that. Yeah. My, my daughter wanted to audition for the talent show, which just blew my mind, but she, she just started playing piano. She wanted to audition for That's the awesome. school talent show. She, she wanted to play Old Town Road. She <laughs> learned it in one night. Like, I found some That's simple so sheet funny. music for it. That's my son's cool. singing it. And then I'm, like, I'm listening to it, because like, it's kind of a funny song. You got, like, you know, Lil Nas X, and you got, like, Billy Ray Cyrus. But there's, like, sports bras and boobies and all this stuff in there. And I'm, like, I don't think I was saying those things when yeah. I was four. <laughs> but and, and I think that that song is fairly 
harmless, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's just, it's it's a fun it's track. It, it's it, th- that is what it is. But there's a lot of other stuff that you know, especially when I look at the stuff that my daughter can hear that's on the radio or that's playing around. I'm like, this is not the world that I would want for my daughter in terms of the way it's talking about women. Right. Right. That's just not my. So thing. now you're voyaging into things that I, I kind of say. When when I look at these things, I'm not happy about right. right. There's, these are the type of areas that we're talking about. It's it's how things uh, how how we're manipulated into buying things mm-hmm. or what have you. I mean, the, these things are all common knowledge. I think for us though, I would love to say that there is all types of music being made. There really is. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's not that. It's not like oh fuck, everyone's making you know. Old Town, whatever road. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, just kind of use that example. No. There's all kinds of stuff being made out there. And we do hear it. It's there. Maybe people like us in the position we're in hear more of it just because we hear artists in different levels and different sure. spaces. Yeah, yeah. But the consumer, for some reason, as much as there are options out there for consuming media and everything else, it's really interesting. You know, it, it, you could say that people are probably listening to fewer types of music than they were at, at any mm-hmm. given time as they are now, even though the options are far greater in terms of access, accessing it or listening to different artists or different things like that. It's, it's interesting how that's playing out. And so I, I'm curious to see how this kind of self-curation um, that we're going through in our musical tastes, yeah. how that ends up being. Because there was once upon a time where people were, whether it was on radio or in these kind of gatekeeper kind of places that were exposing us to all kinds of different stuff, and we were consuming it, we were, we were okay with it. But I feel like those choices and the, that, that curation is now missing. And, yeah. and we're kind of left to our own kind of vices to go out there and find stuff to whatever you know, detriment that might be in whatever range. And so there's this kind of you know, lack of discovery. Yeah. We're not finding different genres, not finding things that we didn't, we, we once to. So I, that, that maybe has something to do with it. I don't know. I, I yeah, be- I actually, my theory on it is that the tastemaker has been relegated to the sidelines. True. Uh, like outside of a major network or a big label or a big brand trying to push yeah. its, it, you know, push its shit at you, the role of a tastemaker, whether that's a DJ on a radio station or in a club, devalued. it has been devalued. And, and the thing is, I think a lot of people looked at the tastemaker as a controller and gatekeeper of what's available to you. Sure. And that's probably true for a lot of it, but they're also a conduit to what might be good. Because, I mean, I kind of think about it this way. If you know, your average person walks into a grocery store, and there are 10,000 products there. There's all kinds of ingredients, fruits, vegetables, meats, cheeses, spices, everything. It's all there. But if you don't have somebody that knows how to actually cook <laughs> and assemble a recipe, right, right, um, or even package up and say, here's the 10 things you should get to put this together, you're not going to know what to do. And it's, it's right. actually not necessarily everybody's jam to walk into this store of all these ingredients and figure out how to assemble. Right, right. Even for me as a musician, as a creator and whatnot, that's never been my strength. There's actually been either between DJs and shows that I've listened to growing up or friends who may not even be musicians themselves, 
may not even be that musical, but for whatever reason, they're in circles, they find something, it's interesting, it catches their ear, and then they pass it along to you. I'm like, oh, and then that becomes a gateway into a whole bunch right. of other stuff. The role of the tastemaker, I think, is probably more important today than it's ever been because the store is bigger. Yeah, you got more to navigate through, and, yeah. there's, and there's much more sifting to, go, to be done. You know, and, and to kind of bring things to things like our radio project, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I am most excited about what we discover here. Uh, I'm most excited about the star that we discover here. I'm most excited about what this station does for how artists develop. I'm most excited about giving uh, a place where somebody can one day say, you know, I'm going to make some music because I think one day Ruckus Avenue Radio will play it. Right. Whereas before that, there was never a place for me to play it. I'm, I'm, I'm living proof of that. Right, right. We used to make music here and we'd send it to BBC Asia Network and they'd be like, well, it's just not Pungra enough right now for us. <laughs> and we'd be like, bro, this is hip hop. I got Talib Kweli on the track and blah, 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 and whatever. And, 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 you know, this is lovely, but do you have something with some thumbi in it, yeah? And you're like, okay, dude, I, I get this. And so there was never, they never got our culture. Now they are because it's kind of being, you know, done there from England and they're starting right, to understand yeah. it. And now they're like flying the hip hop flag and all this other stuff that's just different. But for the longest time, there was no place for us to go. And the only place for us to go was to like take our music and you know what, say, hey, we're going to scrap the Indian element of this or whatever because, you know, there's no place for us so we're just going to become an American rock band, right? Mm-hmm. And let's just go down that, that road, which is great. I have no problems with that whatsoever. You don't have to be Indian if you're Indian. Right, yeah, In your yeah. music, I'm just saying. But now you got an option. There is a place for you. There is an audience for you here that, that can and do that. I, I feel like there's going to be an artist that grows up listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio or might influence them at some point where down the line they come up with an expression of this, whatever that might be, if it's hip-hop or whatever or some sort of extrapolation thereof, right? I think that these things to me are as important to how this stuff gets made as anything. Mm-hmm. You know, is there an outlet for it? Is there a place for this, you know, imagination to kind of voyage into to where there's a home for it, right? Right. There was none of that for us. So you had to kind of be, you know, on your own if you were going to start rapping in Indian like we did back in that time because there was no place for us to go play our stuff. Nobody was going to play it. Nobody wanted to see it. Nobody would book us for shows. And when they did, they would first look at us with their arms folded and look at us like, where are the black people? Yeah, yeah, You know? And there's only four Indian guys here. Where are the black people? And so it's like, for us, that's the first thing we had to overcome was explain why there are four people here not a single black person on stage rapping. And that took us a while, you know, mm-hmm. it took us years. And before Indian people were finally like, yes, four Indian guys, let's go. This is like <laughs> a circus act or something, you know, and let's kind of run with it. And so for us, there were, there were a lot of different things from a cultural perspective that we overcame because there was no home for us. This is interesting. And it goes back to how music is made. It goes back to how people will conceive it. Maybe there's about three or four cats somewhere that are listening to, you know, Mo Joshi's hip hop show on Rutgers sure. Avenue yeah, Radio. Yeah. Uh, being done from out of India and is thinking to himself, oh, dude, I, what if I do this one song and I get Mo to play it on his show and maybe that will start my career, right? right. And, and I think that that kind of moment is where I, I would love to kind of see how this all plays out to the creative side. What's the, right. the story here? Where's the ethnomusicology in this? That there was- so when I hear you talk about music, there's almost this inextricable link to identity. Yeah. You were in England, then you moved to the U.S. You're an Indian guy. You're amongst the first, if not the first, up there for Indian guys rapping and whatnot. So identity is obviously a big part of your life. 
but you're also a father now with three kids at, you know, three, you know, American fairly kids. different ages. Right. When you look at them, how do they see their identity <laughs> right now? Like, are you having these conversations? What are you noticing about them? You know, it's funny. They obviously don't see themselves as defined as I do, right? They see themselves as American kids, right? And I think that there's an element to their identity that my work constantly reminds them of, is that mm. my dad has a radio station or a record label. He's running it downstairs from the studio Sure, right yeah, now. yeah. In, in, in fact while they're playing Old Town Road in their bedroom, right? <laughs> Going back to that example. Um, and and they know that there is this space and there's this world there that daddy kind of does business in and creates this kind of space, right? And, and, and whether it's radio or whatever it might be, there's this identity I've carved out, whether it's here in the U.S. or even around the world, the, the station or this label or whatever it might be unites different people in different ways. It's like a home for the wayward, right? In terms of right. the music industry in that sense, where they don't find a home for them in India, they don't find a home for themselves in the American industry. We're kind of in between, well, fuck it, let's go sign with Ruckus Avenue. Sure, right? yeah. Whatever, I'm just kind of exaggerating to make a point. My, my kids are aware of the space, because I think as they get older, they're becoming more and more conscious of their own race, and they're becoming more and more conscious of their own identity. Especially my daughter, who's now 14, gonna be in December, or in November, rather. Mm-hmm. And she's starting to realize that, you know, I, although, you know, in the school she goes to, the overwhelming majority of the people there are white, right? And she's now starting to understand what it means to be Indian because it's something that does separate her from everyone. So there is this identity as to, like, she's aware of that. And she knows that there is somebody and a group of a lot of people that are creating, doing things, and there's excitement and there's something going on. But how much of that actually connects to her and how much is she rather applying to her life right now and how she forms this? Little, but it's growing. And I think as she gets older, she's going she's gonna to relate more and more to it. And I think that there's, that's going to happen a lot in this gender, generation. I have to ask, how much of it is, you know, obviously as she gets older, she's going to become more aware of this. Is there part of this awareness that you think is being driven by the changing sociopolitical climate in this country? Absolutely. Absolutely. How, like how, how, like how, so how is she internalizing this? Well, I think everybody's asked to explain who they are to everyone in a way, right? If not explain it outright, you're, you're kind of conscious of what us as minority folk, you know, refer to ourselves as. Who, what is our actual identity? We're, we're forced to negotiate this with every Trump comment that comes out every day or every Trump tweet that comes out every day. We're forced to kind of, well, wait a minute. I'm not white. This isn't for me. You know, whatever right, it might right. be. Well, I don't know. Whatever he's saying out there. Or maybe he is saying something about minorities. You're like, holy shit, I'm a minority. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is <laughs> me. And, and maybe not my white friends in school right now. Right. And, and maybe, or maybe they're all kind of snickering about a comment that was made. And wait, that's kind of about brown people. And I am brown. Right. You know, and, and what is, how does that affect me? I think if, in a small way, and I've seen this as well in a certain sense that like, my daughter, as time has grown on, has gravitated to different, you know, people of different color and different skin and different backgrounds because she starts to relate to them a little bit more. So like, hey, you know, there's, they have an understanding of who I am too, that I, even though I am American, there's this life I have at home. You know, my, my dinners look different than mm-hmm. Mikey's or, you know, Jen's or Mary's, right? And so I think for us, that's something that we all always negotiate with and as we get older and these kind of cultural aspects become more and more apparent in our way of life as well I think these are important spaces and listen our station or just our identity here is not about promoting us being Indian and sticking to being Indian and anything else 
we're in the space where we're negotiating through it. We're navigating, like, how much of India do we keep here? How much are we doing not? How much are we doing right, right identify, whatever? And, and, and I think going back to the, the, the topic of karmacy and blood brothers and that discussion, for me, that was interesting because the biggest reaction we used to get to that was what people used to come up to us and say, thank you for rapping in Gujarati and Punjabi and Hindi mm-hmm. and this and that because you've taught my kid that that's important for them to know. You know? Right. That was the biggest thing we used to get from that. We used to get like... There, there was a moment, I remember we were in San Francisco and we had just got off stage. Sorry, we are in New York. Just got off stage and this was the Asia Society. I remember this moment, okay? And there was an Asian lady that was crying on the side of the stage. Everybody had cleared out of the performance. We probably had like four or 500 people there. And this lady had stayed there till the end of the show, right? And I was just like looking at her because she was sobbing. I went over to her and I said, you okay? And she wanted to meet us. And so we started talking and I said, you know, you okay? I noticed that you're... Shala, you, you took me back to some of the experiences I had when I first moved to this country as an Asian person. And how, how I had to negotiate between how I stayed in touch with everyone, what I kept of myself here, and all these different negotiations that I had with myself, and, and all these things as to who my identity is, and what am I going to do here in this world. You took me back to those moments. And, and, and for me, that's what you mean to me and your music means to me so thank mm-hmm. you and that was and to me I was like oh my god this is crazy this is like hitting people in ways that we never expected but we were just telling a story right. and, and, and um, I think these kind of stories weren't coming out in accessible ways like what you see now now we, we see it all over the place right but in that time it was a very rare voice and it was part of who this identity was of who we all are and I think my daughter at some point is going to like have different phases of this kind of, you know, uh, understanding. She's going to understand it maybe from a very elementary perspective right. like we were talking about now from, oh, wait, I'm brown, I'm not white, but perhaps. And then maybe this different evolution of different kind of stages of how she goes about negotiating through it. But it's, it's going to come. It's funny because, so my daughter's eight now, and I remember her drawings in daycare when she would draw herself. She would draw all of her friends and she would look the same at first, it was just, you know, like, stick drawings. And then when she started coloring in skin color, everyone was peach. Yeah. And there was a, fa- there was a mix of everybody. There was, like, Asian, black, yeah. white, yeah. everybody. Like, all these different kids were in her daycare, but everyone was just peach. And then you started to see some shades coming. So I'd say, for instance, pretty much since she was four, she has been coloring herself. It got darker and darker and darker. So now she's kind of like a, I'd say like a, a caramel, maybe a, <laughs> like a very light milk okay, chocolate. Okay. And her friends, if they are white, they are peach. Interesting. If they are Asian, they might be peach with a slightly different hue. But she's very acutely aware of, of color. skin color. Yeah. And she understands that people are from different places and have different food and, and all of this stuff. And she understands the differences, but she hasn't, nothing at all leads me to believe that she has stratified people in any way. No. She's just recognizing the differences yeah. as fact. Right. And it's just so interesting because she knows race exists, whatever this phenotypic exterior right. form of race, she knows it exists. Right. She knows that people are different and have unique cultures and whatnot. She knows that other people don't speak the language she does. And then when she's hanging out with her Chinese friends, she doesn't speak whatever they speak. But it's not better or worse. Hmm. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And just after the elections in 2016, it was interesting because Canada, there's so much constant U.S. media spillover that kids that were below grade six, like, you know, below 10, 11, it was really hard for them to decipher the difference 
that this imaginary border between Canada and the U.S. would actually have. Hmm. So when they see Trump on TV at home, when they hear their parents railing about Trump for or against or whatnot, they don't actually know that this guy doesn't lead that country. <laughs> That's interesting. So I was talking to the, the vice principal at, uh, at my kid's school, and she said they actually saw an increase in anxiety and stress amongst yeah. the student population, yeah. particularly people who were minorities. They didn't know, like, is he going to kick us out? Like, what yeah. does this mean and whatnot? Yeah. These were kids in Canada. And so the border didn't matter at that point. The damage had already been done. The snowball's been put in motion. So he is, uh, you know, this nuclear-level event yeah. for the world. I don't live in America. I'm, I'm curious to know what your take on this is. I don't know if America is night and day different from what it was four years ago, or it's just that the thin veneer of civility has been peeled off by this crazy man in this crazy administration that is just out for, you know, to get some for themselves. That's it. Do you feel differently about America today than you did a few years ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we were, when President Obama was about to leave the White House, we were invited to do that project on anti-bullying. That call we got was in the last week of October, about 10 days before the election. Okay? And they approached us saying that the Asian community, of course you're in the Asian community, you're talking about like people in China, but you're also talking sure. about Middle Eastern people, yeah. you're talking about Indian people, these are all Asian people. And that they had seen, quote unquote, a spike in the Asian community when it came to racism, bullying, and so on, so on and so forth. There was a, a bunch of things that had come on the White House's radar. And so for that reason, they reached out to say, Sammy, put an album together and let's address this, okay? This kind of effect of Trump, of polarizing this country, which, from a political perspective, if you were to look at it on paper, it works for him. Mm -hmm. You know, he needs as many white people to show up at the polls every time that are angry. Right. And that's just his game. It's as simple as that. His job is to keep this country angry because a vast majority of white people in this country do not vote because they believe that so on and so forth is the condition with this country. Maybe it's beyond their vote or they just feel disenfranchised, whatever. We know the story. It's been in the dialogue here for the last right. four years in this country. But he has done a masterful job of keeping people on the edge of their seats when it comes to this kind of topic of are you white or are you not white? Are you nationalistic or are you not nationalistic? And if you're not nationalistic, you're against us in some sort of mm -hmm. way, shape, or form, right? And I think that there is a dangerous line that he has straddled and often in this, in managing some sort of effort in this kind of space, you have to really be skillful at being able to balance that line where people get what you're talking about, but you're not being racist. He has not done that. No, not that no, no. Not that there's a, a virtue in doing that or accomplishing that, but that's what he was set out to do when, when he started kind of campaigning was be nationalistic, but, you know, move the needle and get people out there. And the way I look at this is that I think this is just his MO. He needs this. He needs it to happen. He needs to keep the discussion of race and everything else as prominent as possible because if it ain't for that, people aren't going to show up to vote for him. And that's just what it is. And so he's got to get the angry people but he's, he's also and keep people angry. He's also one man in this entire mix. Like he on his own can't function without the support of a whole bunch of people that don't care at what cost he keeps that party and their interests in power, right? Like it's, it's not, I mean, Trump is, 
he's masterful in his incredible level of I don't give a shit. He's basically that shaggy song, It Wasn't Me. All the evidence points to you being in that bathroom with that woman. You're on camera, and yet you say it wasn't me. And he just lies incessantly. And I think he does it in an era where there is so much evidence to the contrary of it. But because he doesn't give a shit, people think that that's anti-establishment, that's anti-the man. And he comes in on that ticket, but he's actually everything that he claims to be against and more. Of course. But I, I think that there's this kind of thing that we've forgotten about this country over the last eight years that he, you know we had President Obama here, was this country's fucked up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the people in this country are fucked up. There's a lot of people here that have some really kind of you know, bad thinking in mm-hmm. terms of um, racial equality, you know, uh, social economic equality, all these different things that are out there that are plaguing this country and, and are creating so many of these kind of pockets that a person like Trump can go activate, right? And I think that these people who are preyed on like this are now being called to duty in a way, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, I remember, of them, yeah. you know, the, everybody's reaction on November ninth morning or whatever the date was when everybody woke up to headlines of Trump winning and everything else. I remember my post was, if you are surprised that Donald Trump has won the election, you don't know the United States of America. Mm-hmm. That was mine. You know, because everybody's like, oh my God, I can't believe we voted this guy. I'm like, man, y'all people don't know this country. You know, we, you know, you, you just haven't been around, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, this country is completely capable of electing somebody like him. Right. And, and especially with the way he was going about activating people's kind of fear and, and, and really kind of preying on that and, and getting people to the uh, uh, polls by saying, hey, look, you know, Mexican people are going to come in here and sell you drugs and rape all the women. You know, sure, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, and you, you need to do something about it. Right. And so, like, there was a lot of that. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of people aren't educated to how the different communities and cultures are in this country and they're scared. Well, at the same time, I think a lot of countries... So yeah, this country's fucked up. There is no question yeah. about it. It's got, I think, inexcusable problems considering the unique position it's in. And yet so many countries around the world, including Canada, where I'm from, look at it and think that would never happen here or that country's fucked up. We're not <laughs> like that. But if you look at the rise of, you know, whether it's far-right populist leaders in Brazil or what happened, the forces that have kind of led up to Brexit. Depending on who you ask, I think there's some of those elements even at play in India and other countries and whatnot. This can happen everywhere. It is happening everywhere. Uh, And it's (laughs) happening many places. Right. And it's funny because we can sit outside of, you know, perhaps a country like the U.S. on a moral high horse thinking that we're better, but we're actually not. And it's, I think, in many regards, I think what Obama did is He put a black face in the White House, and he did a lot of great things, but he also perpetuated a lot of the ills of America. And at the same time, a lot of issues remained unaddressed, not because he didn't address them, but because they're longstanding issues. The echoes of slavery or the rise of uh, the 1% after uh, NAFTA and globalization and all of these different things, like those are not all... Obama's fault. Right. They're not any one person's fault. It's an accumulation of all these things. But now everybody's suffering from them and yet saying, we're not like that. But there's a rise of that type of rhetoric in Canada. There's a rise in other places. And so I find it interesting when I'm 
now just starting to get into these conversations with my daughter, who's eight, because, you know, she sees if I'm reading the news or every now and then she'll hear about it from friends or it's just, there's, there's just so much media around all the time. She doesn't say a lot about it because I think she's trying to figure it out. But if I was her and I'm growing up in an age where I'm seeing this kind of stuff all the time, I'd be really confused. I'd be like, what is actually happening here? Why is everyone saying the world is warming up? Things are crazy. There's war. Like, growing up, I think we saw, like, ups and downs, but I felt like it was not this constant dystopian view of the world. But if I'm a kid now, I wonder what that would be like. Well, is it is it based on how we're delivering and consuming information? I think that has a lot to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. I think just the, the, the veil that we have to pierce to get people's attention, just how things have to... And, and so people like Trump and these kind of very sensationalized personalities are are actually becoming very successful, mm-hmm. right? These kind of oddball characters that are able to get people talking and, and, and shift the, the, the dialogue towards themselves. Uh, uh, if we look around, those folks succeed in a lot of different places. You know, it's just what it is right now. And I think that that has a lot to do with, again, media, how it's consumed, how people are able to get people's attention and what they must say to do that. Uh, you, you know, if you were to go and act on, on virtue and political achievement and all these other different things that, you know, a president of ours should have or any country should have. Well, none of those things exist in Trump, really, for the most part. And I think that there are people that were overlooked in that election, the last mm-hmm. one or whatever, that did have these things that would really resonate with this country in a positive way. But I believe fell victim to the sensationalized kind of world we live in where everything is so polarizing, it is so attention-grabbing, and it is one of these things. And, and, and I think we're seeing a, a result of that in, mm-hmm. in, how we're, in how our politics are evolving and how we're electing our officials, whether it is our elected officials or American Idol. I don't know, I'm just making sure, stuff, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, right? It's like any of these kind of things that we're getting behind. It's, my point being, I think as long as we keep consuming and reacting to media the way we are, we're going to continue to face these problems. I think it's going to be, it's a little bit of a pendulum swift here, shift here that we're seeing everything kind of go to this kind of sensationalized place. Will it come back? Sure, I think it will. We may even see it in this next election. Do you see 2020 being different? Um, Not in terms of outcome, but just is the atmosphere different? Is, the, is what people know different? I think, I want to say it's, it's, a, it's a wash, it's a push. I think there are a lot of people that are looking at Trump now and saying to themselves, oh my God, we can't believe we put this guy here. But you will find equal amounts of people who say, you know what, I wasn't sure about him before, but you know, doggone it, he's doing a great job for this country because you know, my taxes just went down. Or you know, I've noticed that there's less traffic on the street. Or I don't know, whatever. Yeah, whatever yeah. trivial stuff they have going on that might be as minuscule as their own kind of environment. And I think that when you start to look at how this country's temperature is, I get this scary feeling that he's going to win again. And, you know, just for a combination of reasons. One is because I think, you know, so far America really hasn't grabbed onto that one Democratic kind of candidate. That's one. And then two is that I think that, you know, he's still controlling the narrative the way he was before. It's still polarizing us the same way. He's using different in- things in this country to do so. Now it's you know the debate of guns or different things like that that have mm-hmm. always got people to the polls. And so you know he's pulling the right strings. You know as long as he keeps doing that. What would shot. you, what would you want different for your kids? Ten years from now, you look at 
what the world could be like? What would you want to be different? Oh, wow, that's interesting. I, I think that, I generally think that the youth has to get more involved in how this country is shaped. It has always been an old man's game here. And I think that mm. has to change. The young, I think that's gonna change with how we maybe elect younger officials into our political system or into our social system and to different things like that. These things make a difference. And having different approaches to it that are much more hands-on. I, I think gone are the days where, you have to, where, where kids have to sit back and let the adults make those decisions because apparently looks of it when you turn the TV on, we don't seem to be doing a very good job. Yeah, we don't have very good it, judgment. <laughs> you know, and, and for whatever reason. And um, so I, I think things have to change in that way. I think our youth has to really be motivated to get out there and be involved. And that's really a big thing. You saw a lot of that when... President Obama was around, whether he was getting people to the polls in his election years as well, but even as he went about governing uh, the country, there was a lot of involvement from the youth. There was a lot of different things that were mm -hmm. kind of being you know, incubated amongst the different generations of this country, and I think that's kind of removed again, and I think that, sure, there may be some polarizing aspects of this country. There are people that are getting people involved, and you see that with some of the congressmen and people like that that have been uh, elected to, um, you know, to service over even the midterm elections. But I think as things go forward, you're going to see a lot more of that. And, and that needs to happen, I think. Back in March, I was in Austin for South by Southwest EDU. That's the, the sister part of the conference to the, the main South by Southwest conference. But it's all focused on education and educators. And I've been to Austin before. I'd never been to South by Southwest I have to say the experience that I had there was overwhelming. There's maybe six or 7,000 people that were at this conference, and it felt like a community of people that, especially when you live outside the U.S. and you see the mainstream, it doesn't matter whether it's CNN or NBC or Fox. Like It's the same shouting heads, yelling at each other about stuff. When I met the people that I met in Austin, who are educators, largely focused on you know kindergarten to grade 12, there's a lot of post-secondary and whatnot, they are such energized, grassroots people that really just give a shit about education and about making this country better, the world better. And they were friendly, there was a sense of community, there was everything from the hip-hop ed program through to progressive companies doing things in AI and machine learning, all trying to orient around education. And when we met these people, they were so invigorated and they were also so grassroots that it, it really came down to, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, doesn't matter who's in the Senate, doesn't matter who's running the city, at the end of the day, we have to run this shit. And it's the sort of sentiment you hear and it's a romantic notion for most people, but it was really exciting to be around a group of people yeah. that actually live that. And I remember coming away from that experience thinking, this is not the America that I ever see from outside of America. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think this is the America that much of America never gets to see. There are millions upon millions of people like that, as there are in every country, but, and those voices might be doing the hard work at a grassroots level, but you rarely see them on CNN. You rarely see them on NBC, and I'm sure there's all sorts of string pulling behind the scenes as to why you don't see those voices sure. and you see other voices. But it was actually quite encouraging. I had this, this guy, Darius Baxter, um, who I became friends with after, and he's been through a lot in his life. He started this project out of uh, D.C. called Good Projects, you know, really trying to eradicate violence and deliver people you know, who are uh, in li either lives of 
poverty or struggle, you know, trying to get them to lift themselves up and give them the tools and the skills to, to grow. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's us. We live here. Like, yeah. it's, it's in our hands. It doesn't matter who's running what, right? And so I think it, it comes back to taking things into our own hands and not expecting a president or a senator or a governor to take care of everything because that's no one else's problem. It's our problem. We live here. Yeah, this is an interesting aspect. If there's anything positive that came out of the Trump presidency was this kind of feeling like, oh, shit, he became president? Fuck, maybe I can too in this kind of small way. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and listen, the guy comes from privilege and all these other things yeah. and, and, all, and, and, and so many different things that you don't necessarily compute every day when you listen to this guy up there. But there is a sense of, hey, I don't need to be a career politician to do so, right? If there's anything about it, that if I am able to go in there and kind of, you know, ruffle up the, the system in whatever way, shape or form, I can go in there and, and make an impact or at least I can get in there somewhere. Right. I think that had a lot to do with even some of the energy that was around the midterms that happened. And I think you'll continue, continue to see this even in this generation coming forward, that there'll be people that have aspirations of going into politics, but not as a primary career, always as something that's there as, as, as something, as part of their career at some point. And, mm. and I think that um, that also could be very interesting for us because getting people to be involved in the political system is always very difficult, right? Right. Um, it, it for, for so many years, was closed to this kind of system that was very kind of closed to the casual businessman, as maybe Trump was and, you know, seen in some political circles in his early part of this run. Right. And, and I think that you're going to see that, man. I think you're starting to see this in the grassroots movements that are happening. Uh, I think the... Uh, there is a huge youth movement in politics now as well for this purpose. I think the people are you know, definitely very activated by what's happened with Trump as to, to kind of maybe hoping that this doesn't happen again. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, but I think people are very self-conscious of their voice now. I think people are aware that they have a space that they can go create and, and be a part of. And of course, social media and certain things like that help empower that or at least kind of give some sort of imagination into that window. But I think now people are starting to kind of put two and two together and say, you know what, if I choose to be in the space, I really want to and I have a certain message, mm -hmm. I can put two and two together and go out there and become something. And I think that's, that's right. something positive out of it. If there's Do you think if you had grown up today in the age of social media, would you be a different person? How do you think it would have affected you in terms of who you are? It's hard to say that. Um, I, I, don't, I would like to say it wouldn't have changed me, right? I mean, that's the easy answer, or at least the convenient answer. I, I think that um, I, my reference to this is also how kids have used it, and my kids at least use it, and, and imagining myself going through that kind of process of it as well. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I think that maybe... You know, going back as to what I was doing musically, maybe there would have been a different message in there. Maybe it would have been wider in its social message, even though we were always been about that and we've always right. kind of carried that. But I think there may have been maybe some more tangible political activism around it. Maybe there would have been a little bit more kind of mobilization around certain things that we were doing. Maybe we wouldn't have felt as alone as we were in the 90s doing hip hop as Indian people. I don't mm -hmm. know. Things like that may have happened. Maybe, maybe we would have been bolder. I'm not sure. I get the feeling that would have been the case. And maybe we would have done things and tried things that, that would maybe be a little bit more impactful than maybe they were at that time. But with that being said, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, 
maybe it's easier to find for other guys to rap with you in English or in Indian or whatever it is, whereas it was back then, I think, uh, a karmacy back there was four people. I think there were really only four Indian kids rapping in the country at the time. I think that's really what it was. And right. the criteria of how we, be, you know, became a group. As now, it's it's different. You know, there's, there's so many different voices out there, and so much, you know, stuff. You guys were on. also. I mean, you obviously knew each other. You met each other. You're right. in proximity of each other. Right. You know, there's an experience perhaps being Indian, but also being in California and all those things. Right. right? Like you can you can vibe and and relate to each other on on that. No doubt. As well. Yeah. And that, was, and that was an experience we all kind of went through. And, and it was funny because the four of us were essentially doing the same thing, but in four different kind of places in a way. Uh, and uh, we kind of brought our kind of struggle together in that way. It was like a, a uniting aspect of it. It was right. like, oh, shit, people think we should be rapping because we're not black. You know, that was like the initial thing, right? Mm. We were like, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, we're going to use our culture and show that there's a space for this to exist, you know, even in our own way. It doesn't have to be something that we've kind of culture vultured and kind of... Just on that note, I've always found it kind of amusing in junior high when there wasn't that many Indian kids where I was. If there was an Indian guy and an Indian girl, everyone else would just be like, hey, why don't you guys hook up? <laughs> because that was the only criteria. You just you both happen to be Indian. That's Why don't so you just funny. hook up, sort of thing? Or um, yeah, I know an Indian guy. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. Him? Or, or <laughs> colleagues of mine that feel absolutely compelled to come in on Monday and say, "I was thinking about you this weekend." I'm like, "Okay, why?" He's like, "I had this amazing butter chicken." Right? <laughs> the number of times I had the butter, and it was multiple people. Yeah. I ate the butter chicken reference or the sog paneer reference. I'm like. I mean, I, I, at first I'm like, okay, that's kind of cute and flattering and weird, I guess. But then eventually I'm like, dude, like this is, if this is the only lens you can see me in, I, I don't really know <laughs> what, what to do with it, right? <laughs> and then I'd rib them back, but like, you know, like I was thinking about you this weekend, I had a hot dog, like sort of thing. And then they'd be kind of react awkwardly to it because they did, wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I'm like, see, that's what it feels like. It's such a stupid <laughs> comment to make. That's um, funny. Simon, look, you've been, it's been great to be here in LA Thanks, at Dash, man. you know, meeting you. For everyone out there, what are you excited about? What do you want them to know about you and where can they find out more about you? Wow. Um, you know, uh, definitely keep uh, supporting Ruckus Avenue Radio. Others uh, were really honored to have your show on our station. Uh, it's something for us that we're, we're very excited about and we, we always brag about it as often as we can. And for, you know, us, we'd love for people to keep supporting your show, uh, tune into Ruckus Avenue Radio and get a glimpse of what's going on in our station. We've, you know, really um, wrangled up uh, a, an amazing group of hosts at our station and, and, and really are excited about what they're putting out there and the shows and the dialogue that they're developing and, and kind of touching back on this discussion. I'm just really curious and really excited to see what, what comes about this station and, and what results from it, whether it is musical discovery, uh, cultural and social kind of progress and understanding and stuff like that that we can uh, spread around there and, and, mm -hmm. and so yeah th those are the things that really drive me right now so uh, I, I think you know just wanted to thank everyone for tuning in and for their continuous support but you know definitely on the uh, on a personal front um, you can always keep up with me on Sammy Chan on Facebook or Instagram or, or any of those places but Ruckus Avenue Radio is a great place to come hear what we're up to. Well, you guys planted a seed all those years ago in, in California, and it has taken root in the subcontinent, so I'm pretty sure this is going to find its way somewhere. Thank you, man. I hope so. Your words to, to God's ears, so there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sammy. This, is, uh, this has been a privilege. Thanks, Vanish. Thanks a lot.
So if you've listened till this point in the episode, I can only assume one of two things. You either A, really dig this podcast, or B, you started playing the podcast and left the room and totally forgot it was even playing, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. So if you are digging this podcast, there's many ways that you can support it. You can definitely subscribe in your app of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, in TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and for all the folks around the world, we're on Ruckus Avenue Radio. You can also follow us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Awoken Word Podcast. On Twitter, as at Awoken Word. We also have a Facebook page under Awoken Word Podcast. Hey, if you've got an idea for a guest or a conversation or a topic that you'd like to see or hear touched on, please reach out. Let us know. Feel free to share some of these ideas or bring up some of these ideas in your own podcast. If you're hanging out with friends or family, maybe over beers or coffee or a smoothie, who am I to judge? If you're hanging out with someone and something comes to mind, tell them about this podcast. Tell them this is where you heard it. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your co-workers, tell your great-grandma, tell that weird naked guy who hangs out on his balcony on the building across the street from you all the time. We appreciate the support of each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until the next episode of Awoken Word, peace out.